Uh, I'm excited uh, to be able to, to share with you, to, to bring God's Word for the next four weeks, kind of share with you what God's been putting on my heart as well as just what, what He's been teaching me through this. And so uh, we're going to be studying the book of Jonah over the next four weeks. And so my thought was uh, I really wanted to focus on uh, a minor prophet and one that we could try to accomplish in four weeks. Um, and really, this probably should take longer than four weeks, but there's four chapters, so here we are, all right? So we're going to try to hit one each week, um, so that should guide you, which means that next week we would be in Jonah chapter 2. So feel free to read that before next week so you already know where we're at, okay? Um, but uh, we're going to be uh, in Jonah, and so I'd like to ask you to turn to Jonah chapter 1 in your Bibles. Um, feel free to use that table of contents if it, you find that it gets lost uh, in all of those minor prophets in the Old Testament. Um, the, the sermon series is entitled A Deeper Dive into God's Grace and Mercy because throughout this entire book, we're just going to see God's acts of mercy over and over and over and over to various people, to Jonah, to the sailors, to the Ninevites, to everybody that's a part of this. We're going to see this, this theme over and over. And as chapter 1, uh, as we get into that here in just a minute, we know that uh, Jonah throughout chapter 1 is doing the exact opposite of what God wants. And so uh, today we're going to uh, entitle the message, Running from God. And so um, there, are, uh, a lot of, there is a lot of debate, all right, over whether or not the book of Jonah is real? Is it satire? Um, what is it? Was Jonah a real person? Um, th there are all these types of questions that, that I, I see and I hear over and over. And one of the things that, that we look to is Scripture to, uh, to basically interpret Scripture, right? And so uh, Jonah is also mentioned in 2 Kings as a real person and a prophet. And then in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus references Jonah and his three days in the belly of the whale uh, when he speaks, and he uses that um, as, a, as a primary support to, to the point that he's making in that passage. And so I, I believe that, that even in light of that, we see uh, the consistency of the truth of the realness of Jonah and his, and his story from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. And so uh, he has support there. Um, and so this morning, uh, we're going to be in chapter 1. So we're going to read this together, and then we're just going to kind of walk through it verse by verse. So uh, it's probably a little bit different than I've done things in the past, but uh, I'm excited for it and to do that with you this morning. So we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1, uh, and I want to read this with you. The word of the Lord <clears throat> came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we, consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots and then we'll know who is to blame for this trouble that we're in. So they cast lots and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us who is to blame for this trouble that we're in. What is your business? Where are you from? What's your country? What people are you from? 
And he answered them, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were seized by a great fear, and they said to him, What is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you so that the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. And he answered them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I'm to blame for this great storm that's against you. Nevertheless, the men rowed harder to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. And so they called out to the Lord, please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity this morning, God, to study your word, to dive in. Um, God, to be able to, to really figure out what it is that you want us to learn from it, God, in this familiar passage that that any of us that have grown up in church have heard over and over. God, I pray that we would, we would find an even deeper truth than we ever have before this morning. God, I pray that you would just um, allow me to be a humble vessel of your truth and your words. And um, God, just uh, give us the ability, God, to, to see and to obey and uh, to just hear the truth that you have for us today. In your name I pray. Amen. And so we know this is a, uh, it, it's, it's a familiar story. You guys could, uh, I could have asked any number of folks. I could have, could have asked a three, four, five, six-year-old to come up here and tell us the story of Jonah. And they probably could have done it, right? Um, but it's interesting because if we go back and study a lot of these stories that maybe we learned in preschool and things like that, there's a lot of things they don't tell us back then um, for a lot of reasons, uh, probably because we shouldn't know a lot of it back then. Um, but diving in deeper really gives us more than we ever had before. And so one of the things that's interesting about the book of Jonah that we can already see is uh, Jonah in and of itself is a very unique book of prophecy, okay? It's a very unique book of prophecy. Um, other prophetic books in the Old Testament focus on the message. The, the whole books basically are built around this is the message. Go take this message somewhere. Go take this message somewhere. And it's the message itself. But the book of Jonah actually focuses more on... Um, <clears throat> the journey of this prophet, even more than the message. And so the message itself is also different. So typically, when God was speaking to a prophet, he would say to go and speak to, to Israel or to prophesy the demise of your enemies or whatever, but he didn't usually send the prophet to the enemy to make that prophecy. And so it's different in the way um, that this, this particular prophet uh, breaks things down, Okay. And so here, the prophet is, prophecy is made to the enemy, offering a chance at redemption and forgiveness. And so in verse 1, we're introduced to the two main characters. All right, our two main characters here are God and Jonah. No surprise, right? And we're introduced to both. And we're going to learn a lot about both over the next four weeks. But I want to mention a few things to you about Jonah that may help us understand him a little bit better, uh, in part because he has a pretty bad rap. Uh, I would imagine that most of us, when we hear the word Jonah, we're like, yeah, that guy, he was messed up. And yet, so are we. So here we are, right? 
And so I want to help us learn a little bit more about Jonah before we start and start uh, diving into uh, how terrible uh, of a prophet he was. Uh, But the only thing we see in verse 1, we figure out that he's the son of Amittai and that the word of the Lord came to him. That's all they give us as far as a background. And so the other places we can turn, we're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 14. So I don't have it up on the screen, but you can feel free to write the reference down. 2 Kings 14, 23 to 25. It gives us a little bit more information that I think would be beneficial for us in this. Here's what it says. 2 Kings 14, 23 to 25. In the 15th year of Judah's king Amaziah, son of Joash, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, became king of Israel. He reigned 41 years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did not turn away from all the sins Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. He restored Israel's border from Libo Hamath, as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word the Lord, the God of Israel, had spoken through his servant, the prophet Jonah, son of Amittai, from Gath-Hefer. And so in these verses, we learn a few things, all right? We learn where he's from, the city of Gath-Hefer, which is really close to Nazareth. And as we read in, in Matthew 12 and these things, we see uh, that Jesus is a greater Jonah, and so we start the comparisons already looking at where he's from, very close to where, where Jesus is, right? And, and we learn that Jonah prophesied during Jeroboam II's reign. That's what we learn here. But there were other prophets that did as well. Amos and Hosea also prophesied during the same time frame, okay? And so Jeroboam was this evil king. And so Jonah prophesied positively to the evil king of Israel that they would expand their borders, okay? And it happened. And so here's what we have. We have Jonah, who is a prophet to Israel, that that speaks positively to them, and now he is viewed as a spiritual hero in Israel. All right? So you have Jonah, spiritual hero in Israel that we gather from 2 Kings. And in verse 2, God tells him to go to Nineveh to preach against it. This was rare for God to ask a prophet to do. And so Jonah, this hero in Israel, is being asked to go to Nineveh. All right, here's another reference I'd encourage you to, to write down. Uh, in Genesis chapter 10, 8 through 11, that's the first mention of Nineveh, by the way, in Genesis chapter 10. And here a hunter named Nimrod builds Nineveh in Assyria. And it was the first city mentioned as being built in Assyria, and so it was a very prominent city, a very prominent city. And so why was this city, this destination, so important? Why was that so significant that it would cause Jonah to pause and not be willing to go prophesy there? And, and he doesn't actually give us his logic at this moment. Jonah doesn't. He waits till chapter 4, although we think there's more to it than what he actually says in chapter 4. Okay, um, But Nineveh itself was an evil people. I don't just mean they were bad, y'all. I mean they were doing unthinkable, unspeakable things to folks. Historic records show that they would skin people alive. They would sacrifice babies and children. They would decapitate live people, and they would do other horrific acts. They were the worst, all right? They were the worst. And they were also Israel's enemies. So Jonah, speaking positively as a prophet to Israel, go to your enemies and deliver this message that may lead them to repentance, Starting to figure out why Jonah may have backed out yet. So God asked Jonah to go and prophesy to his enemies to repent. And he's asking Jonah to help his enemies. And God commands him in verse 2, get up, go to Nineveh. And here's the thing. 
What does it say Jonah does? He does get up and he does go. He's obeying, right? He gets up and goes to the wrong place, right? To the wrong place. This may be the most significant thing, uh, the most impactful thing that some of you will take from this morning. And here it is, that partial obedience is still disobedience. That partial obedience, he did get up and go. He didn't stay where he was, but he didn't go where he was supposed to. So there was this partial obedience that we see, but that is still disobedience. Doing part of what God asks us to do is not fully submitting. And so for Jonah, we see here, he isn't just going a few miles away. He's trying to go to the westernmost part of the known world at this time. You can see that there, all right? That's quite a distance. It's quite a distance. And so He's trying, he's trying to go to the, the westernmost part of the known world. Nineveh is 500 miles uh, east of Jerusalem. He's trying to go 2,000 plus miles west to Tarshish, 2,500 miles from where he was supposed to be. 2,500 miles, all right? Just to wrap our minds around it by comparison, St. Louis to Los Angeles is about 1,800 miles, all right? Just to try to grasp this a little bit, all right? So 700 miles even further than it would be for us to go to L.A. from here, okay? And so he isn't just trying to flee uh, God's presence, which you notice that phrase is repeated twice in the first three verses. So Jonah isn't just trying to flee the task he's been given to avoid what's being asked of him. He's trying to flee the one who gave him the task. There's a difference, Okay? Yes, he's trying to avoid the task. He's trying to not obey. He's trying to not do what the Lord asked him. But he's, he's taking it so far as to try, to try to flee the one who gave him the task altogether. All right? That's an extra step further. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a few observations. And here's the first one we're going to look at this morning. All right? I'm going to tell you in advance, there's seven of them, so we'll see how fast I move. All right? Here's the first one. That it's impossible to flee God's presence. No surprise, right? So he says uh, twice here uh, in verse 3, I'm going to flee from the Lord's presence. He paid the fare, went down to go with it to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. And so you're going to notice there's a lot of repetitive phrases in the book of Jonah or repetitive words. And those are significant. Those are significant. And so here we see he repeats this twice in those first three verses. And so this phrase from the Lord's presence uh, was a Hebrew idiom that basically indicated that Jonah was in full rebellion against the Lord, just flat out full rebellion. He's actively trying to ditch the Lord. And yet he understands that the only possible way to escape obedience to the Lord would be to escape the Lord altogether. That's what he does. He thinks distance is going to help. Eventually he thinks death is going to try to help him escape. He does whatever he can. All right. And based on that distance that you saw on the map, based on what we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 21, it would have taken a year to 18 months to sail to Tarshish from where he was at. A year to 18 months. You can't even imagine being on a boat that long. But he didn't care. He was more than willing because it meant getting away from God. It meant being able to avoid what God wanted him to do. And so he was fleeing his call to speak to his enemies. He was trying to run from the God that gave him the role of prophet to begin with. But you notice that Jonah tries to get on this boat and sail away, but God's already there. God's already there. He's preparing this wind and this storm. You see, when Jonah ran, God ran faster. God beat him to his location. He was there waiting for him. 
There was no way he was going to escape. He was present with them while he was fleeing. He was present when he arrived at his destination. I would also submit to you that God used the sailors to remind Jonah of God's presence. Because there's a lot of repetition, like I mentioned, and God says to arise and get up, right? Well, we'll get to it here in a little bit, but the sailors also later on use the exact same terms, telling him to get up and to arise. And so it's this reminder. I've heard those words somewhere before from the Lord. I've heard those words somewhere before. So he's even using them to remind him. But no matter how hard Jonah tries, he couldn't flee the presence of the Lord. Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8 tell us this. It says, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. See, Sheol refers to the grave. And so whether we're in the grave, whether we're in heaven, or whether we're somewhere in between, he is there. There's no escaping the presence of the Lord. Jonah didn't get that. And yet, we do that sometimes. We try to run from God, from what he's called us to do. And we try to run in turn, try to run from God himself. And so there are times I have a hard time being upset with Jonah about this because I can sympathize. Because I've been there. I've run from God's call to ministry in my life for years. There were even times I was running from his call on my life while I was serving in ministry. But God was gracious. God was merciful. God leads us back to obedience. You know, I hear this oftentimes, like, I don't know if it's in horror movies or different things, mostly because I don't really watch horror movies, y'all. That's not really my jam. Uh, But you've probably heard this a bunch of times. The phrase, you can run, but you can't hide. That's basically what's applicable right here, right? Like, Jonah can run, but he can't hide. God knows exactly where he is, and God's still there. You can run, but you can't hide. And we get to verse 4, and God throws this great wind onto the sea that creates a great storm, and we see another beautiful thing about God here. But here's the thing. The obvious one would be, let's talk about how he's in control and all of this, and we'll get to that later, okay? But right here, we notice something else. The second observation is that God pursues his people. See, God actively pursues Jonah. Jonah tries to flee. He tries to avoid doing what God wanted him to. You could say Jonah was a master task avoider, all right? I know. Sometimes I'm that guy, all right? Trying to avoid the task at hand. But God could have even sent another prophet. Did you notice that? I mentioned to you that Amos and Hosea were prophesying at the same time. God could have sent a different prophet to Nineveh. He could have done that. God could have sent one of them. He could have let Jonah go, but he doesn't. He pursues Jonah to great lengths, and he uses whatever it took to draw him back in. You see, the words in Hebrew, the way that it's ordered here, is emphasizing the fact that God's the one that took the initiative. God's the one who took the initiative to go and pursue Jonah. God uses this wind and this storm to prevent him from getting any further away. And so God pursues him even in creating the storm. In John 3, 16, right? Familiar verse for most of us, right? God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Who initiated that? God did. In Luke 15, verse 4, we read about the leaving the 99 to find the one. Who initiates that? God does. He pursues. He comes for us. There's a beautiful hymn, one of my favorites actually, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that has a few lines that paint this beautifully. It says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, 
wandering from the face of God. He, to save my soul from danger, interposed his precious blood. And then later on, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O take and seal it with thy spirit from above. Rescued thus from sin and danger, purchased by the Savior's blood. You see, we're prone to wander. But Jesus sought us in our wandering. He desired us. He came for us. He didn't abandon us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He pursued. And there are times that we'll we'll read where Jonah basically gives up on God and gives up on himself. Jonah's like, I'm done. But God's like, not yet. I'm not done with you yet. There are greater things I'm going to do through you. And so even as we run, he pursues There are times that we want to give up, either on ourselves or on our faith. But rest assured and know that the God that sent his son to die for you and for me will continue to pursue us and to use us. We serve a gracious and merciful God, a God that pursues his people. And then we arrive here at verse 5, and we're introduced to the sailors. And the first thing that we see, and this is a theme in this book, by the way, there are three different times it talks about the sailors and their fear. And so this is what starts here in verse 5, and we'll get to those, the significance of that later, all right? Um, but they're, they're in fear of this raging storm. Now, you've got to remember, these are professional sailors. This is what they do for a living. But this storm was unlike anything they had ever seen, unlike anything they had ever experienced. It was obvious from their response that we'll get to in a moment that this wasn't a normal storm, Okay? This wasn't just a little bit of rain, some rough waves. This thing was beyond anything they had experienced before. And they start praying to other gods. And as this storm is raging, where is Jonah? He's down in the boat sleeping, taking a nap. Hmm. I know of somebody else that slept on a boat during a storm too, but... That one turned out a little differently. And here's what happens. When it says that he's down in the boat sleeping, it's, like I said, repetition's important in this book. This is the third use of the term going down in this this book. And so far, and we've already covered all three. And that brings us to the next observation. Physical rebellion has spiritual ramifications. Your, spirit, your, your physical rebellion, Jonah's physical rebellion had spiritual ramifications. As Jonah ran physically further and further away from God, he became further away from God spiritually. See, the book of Jonah is beautifully written. It uses this intentional repetition. In verse 1, you notice it says the evil goes up to the Lord. Okay? Evil goes up. And then you have twice in those first three verses, he went down to Joppa. And then... He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. And then you go even further into the verses that we're at, uh, in where we're at now. And, uh, sorry, I'm trying to make sure I don't lose my spot here. Uh, in verse 5, where it says Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel. Do you see the word picture here? This thing about continuing to go down was significant. It was significant. Then ultimately being thrown into the sea, he would go down further, right? And so this repetition of going down was speaking of the spiritual downward spiral that Jonah was involved in. See, the repeated use of that term is a picture of the downward progression of sin. 
It starts with one act of disobedience, and then it snowballs, and it takes you further away than you ever wanted to go. And Jonah disobeys in verse 2, right? But then multiple times since then, and we read about it throughout chapter 1, he has the opportunity to humble himself and to repent, and he avoids it. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. His pride gets in the way. This sin takes him further away from God, physically and spiritually. And if we aren't careful, we experience the same thing, y'all. When we recognize opportunities to repent of our sin and we ignore those opportunities, when we mess up and we think that God will forget about it, which I believe Jonah was really hoping that God was going to forget. When we let sin snowball in our lives, it impacts our relationship with God. It hinders that relationship. We begin to care more about what people say or think than what God does than what God says, what God thinks. We put God on the back burner and our relationship with him suffers. And yet that's the one relationship in our lives that we can't afford to have suffering. It's the one relationship that we need the most, that we need more than any other. And so we have to be careful because our rebellion has spiritual ramifications. And as we keep reading, we see Jonah is, like I mentioned before, below the deck asleep. And this word for deep sleep is the same Hebrew word used when God puts Adam to sleep to create Eve. Same term. It is a heavy, deep sleep. And so the captain comes in verse 6. What are you doing? That's a fair question, is it not? I mean, how in the world can this man be sleeping during the storm of the century while the rest of us are in chaos trying to figure out what in the world to do? And you're down here taking a nap. What are you doing? That's a fair question. Matter of fact, I'd imagine a lot of us may have asked the same thing. And then they tell him, call out to your God. Maybe he'll save us. What's ironic is that really is more prophetic, even though Jonah's the prophet. <laughs> because they're right. If he does that, the storm stops. But he doesn't, right? If he does that, the storm stops. The sailors hit it right on the nose. That's exactly what needed to happen. If Jonah just cries out and repents of his selfishness, his pride and his disobedience, God will calm the storm. But Jonah refuses. And that leads to our next observation. That our sin, whether repentant or unrepentant, impacts other people. That it impacts others. As we see here, Jonah's sin impacts these sailors. They got up to go to work like a normal day. You know, all think about that? They got up like, we're going to go to work. We may experience a little rough waters because that's what happens when you're a sailor. But this is going to be a normal day. We're going to go. We're going to get to our destination eventually because remember it was a long trip where they were going. But they got up to go to work like normal. Instead, they have this other guy on the boat who isn't normally on the boat. And they're facing a storm so strong it could take their lives. And so Jonah's sin physically endangers these pagan sailors. And they're enduring a storm unlike any other they've ever, ever seen. As a matter of fact, this storm impacts them financially because what do they do? They throw the cargo overboard, which is more than likely, you know, their means of money, right? So it impacts financially because they had to throw it uh, overseas. And so they, they lost, uh, well, they lost their profit, right? Uh, it impacts their time, right? They spend a ton of time trying to figure out what in the world can we do to calm the storm? They spend a bunch of time and energy rowing all the harder to get to the shore to no avail. It has an impact on others. That's what our own selfishness and pride do, y'all. Anyone in the room that's ever looked 
at pornography that has an impact on your relationship with your spouse or future spouse. Your secret addiction to that or alcohol or something else creates a trust barrier between you and other people. Our sins have significant ramifications for us physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, but it also impacts others and our relationships with them. And we see that here with Jonah and these sailors. And so in verse 7, we get here, and they cast lots, and the lots land on Jonah. Well, why do they have to cast lots? Because in verse 6, they tell him, hey, call on your God. He'll stop it. And the next verse says they cast lots because Jonah didn't do what they said either. Jonah didn't call on God then either. He still avoided it. Jonah still doesn't take responsibility at this point for what's happening. And if Jonah calls out to God and repents, there's no casting of lots. The storm ceases. We're never even introduced to this giant fish that we read about in verse 17. Because those things don't need to happen because it's already dealt with. It's already taken care of. And so then they ask him a series of questions. And the first thing that he says uh, as these questions, they're asking him, uh, who's to blame for this? What's your business? Where are you from? Etc. The first thing he says is that he's a Hebrew. And see, this was of utmost importance to Jonah above all else. You notice, it doesn't say, the first thing he doesn't say is, I'm a prophet of God. That's not the first thing he says. First thing he says is, I'm a Hebrew. And so he's got this, this, this nationalism prioritized over some other things, right? But then it says, uh, what's your business? And we go down to verse 10, and he told them he was fleeing the Lord. And so it, it's, to some degree, he does tell them his business. Why are you here is really their question when they say, what's your business? Well, I'm fleeing from the Lord. That sounds like a bad idea. I think even the sailors knew that. And we read that in a minute. We find that out. They recognize it, even though he apparently doesn't, right? And so then, what is their response? The sailors say to Jonah after that, what is this that you have done? It's an interesting thing to say. And notice it's not a question. It has an exclamation point at the end of it. It's not a question, because they already know. They recognize that he did something seriously wrong. The sailors recognize, the pagan sailors that worship other gods, other inferior gods that don't compare to the one and only God, figured out that he did something seriously wrong. This statement, what is this that you have done, by the way, is also found in Genesis chapter 3 when God speaks to Eve after eating of the fruit of the tree. In Genesis 3.13. Although God asks it as a rhetorical question because he already knows as well, right? And then we get to verse 11, and the sailors ask, what should we do to you so the sea calms down for us? They're giving Jonah an out. Did y'all catch that? They're giving him an out. They're like, we'll take care of it for you if it saves our lives too. And this leads to the next observation, probably the most important one. Our works can't save us, only God can. And here's why I put this here. You notice the wording in the question, what can we do to you to make this stop? They think it's their actions that are going to cause this to stop. See, first, in verse 5, the sailors call out to their gods or their idols. And what happens? The storm continues to rage. That was their first thing. Well, if we do this, it'll stop. Negative. See, these idols are the things that we run to instead of running to God alone. The sailors had been crying out to their false gods. And then what else do they do? They hurl their cargo over to try to save themselves from the most intense storm of their lives. The storm doesn't stop with their praying. The storm doesn't stop with them throwing their stuff over sea. As a matter of fact, what God has done is he has smashed all of their hopes and their idols. 
and shown them that their gods are useless. That's what he's done. Then they cast lots to help them. And now they ask what they have to do to get it to stop. Now ultimately, they do throw Jonah overboard, right? But these sailors are confused about who God is, and they think they can save themselves by the things that they do. They're willing to do anything they can to make the storm stop, short of killing someone at this point, by the way. Because you notice when they tells them to throw them overboard, they don't, at least at first. They're willing to do anything they can to make the storm stop. Any actions they can do, because they think that it's on them and what things that they do. And yet, to no avail. They said, what must we do to you to make it better for us? They think it's something they have to do. Guess what? We do the same. We have our own idols, right? Our achievements, trying to be the perfect husband, the perfect wife, the perfect mother, the perfect father, the perfect child. And as long as we have idols, we're going to find ourselves at great odds with God. So God wants to break down these idols. He wants to teach us to rely solely on God's grace in Christ. And so we're reminded here of the greater Jonah, which is Jesus, that a sacrifice must be made for the sailors to be saved. And the sacrifice is the prophet of God. And Jesus is what? Prophet, priest, and king. Right? If y'all haven't seen all these connections before, hopefully you'll see a lot of them over the next four weeks. See, we see it here and in the Gospels when the disciples are on the sea. We read of Jesus sleeping on the boat during the storm, and when the disciples wake him up, he does what Jonah can't. He calms the storm because he has authority over the storm. No other God could do what our God can do. Only God could save the sailors. Only God could save Jonah. Only God could save the Ninevites or the Israelites. Only God can save the people of this world. Only God can save you and to save me. Our works don't do it. We're saved by God's grace through the already completed work of Jesus. That's good news for us, y'all. That's great news for us. And so we see here, Jonah has another opportunity to call out to God, to save the sailors and himself, but he still refuses. What should they do to him? Kill me. It's Jonah's response. Kill me. Throw me overboard. I don't want to be here anymore anyway. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be there. I just don't really care anymore. Just throw me overboard. I want to die. He would rather die than obey a holy God. He would rather die than go to Nineveh and prophesy to his enemies. He was unwilling. Did you notice this? He was unwilling because it would have been dangerous for him to go to Nineveh, okay, because of their their status as enemies. He was unwilling to die in obedience, but he was willing to die in disobedience. Isn't that interesting? What in the world? That's crazy. He wasn't willing to put himself in danger to go to Nineveh. By the way, part of this, I believe, is that verse that speaks about how a prophet is not welcome in his hometown, because can you imagine his reception back in Jerusalem if he goes and prophesies in Nineveh and then saves and helps their enemies? Can you imagine that? having to come back. I think there's a lot to this. And yet, that's where we're at, right? And so, he's willing to give it up in disobedience. A contrast to the greater Jonah, Jesus, who gave up his life in obedience for you and for me. And as we keep reading, the sailors initially refuse to throw him in. They actually care more about Jonah than he does for them because his actions show that he could care less what happens to the sailors. But their actions show that they actually don't want him to die. Jonah refuses to do anything that would help them out. He seems willing to take them down with him. But they do everything they can to avoid harming Jonah. 
And we get to verse 13. And we read that the men rode hard to try to get back to the dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them all the more. And here's where we see another observation. And I could have put this anywhere in this whole session. But uh, it's simply that God is in control of all things. We see it in verse 4. Who throws the wind onto the sea? God does. How about the casting of lots in verse 7? The rocks or the dice, they could have turned and fell on anybody on the ship, and yet they go to the one who is sleeping below the deck. That's not chance, y'all. It's the Lord manifesting his will, showing his rule over all things. His rule over Jonah's life, over the sailors' lives, over the storm, over the sea, over the ship, over everything else. In verse 13, it says the sea was raging more and more. Who was responsible for that? God was. Because God was making sure that Jonah was dealt with. And as we'll read in a minute, in verse 15, the storm ceased when Jonah was thrown overboard. That was God's doing. In verse 17, the Lord appoints the great fish to swallow Jonah. Who did that? God did that. Had control over the fish, control over uh, all of creation, over the sea, over the wind. He's in control of it all. So what Jonah said was actually true, that the Lord made the sea and the dry lands. And as the creator of those things, he has control over those things and everything else. And so I don't know about y'all, but one of my favorite things about my relationship with the Lord is looking back on things I didn't understand and watching how he ordered my steps to get me where he wanted me to be. You guys ever have those experiences where you look back on something and you're like, whoa, I had no idea that's what God was doing at the time, but I'm thankful that he did. That's one of my favorite things. And we see that, how he orders all of these things to happen for his intended purpose, right? So God has authority over all things. He speaks, creation listens. And then we get to the end, verses 14 through 16. I say the end because I'm actually going to cover 17 next week, all right? The sailors call out to the Lord. Here's why this is important. Previously, they prayed to their little g gods. Who they were praying to at the beginning to try to get them to stop. Here, the Hebrew word is Yahweh. Now they're praying to Yahweh. They were praying to the Lord, and in doing so, they were acknowledging his control over all things. It says that you have done as you pleased is what they're saying. And this is referenced three other times in the Old Testament, that same phrase. And each time, what it's saying uh, is it's comparing God to pagan gods, saying he's far greater than all the pagan gods because he does what they can't. So they're saying, Yahweh, this is the one true God. And so they, they, they make sure that God's not going to hold them accountable for Jonah dying because they don't want to be murderers, right? And then they obey. They throw Jonah in the sea, and instantly this chaotic mess that's going on around them is serene and peaceful interesting it's transformed and so verse 16 give us our last observation from the passage god can use disobedient people to draw others to himself god can use disobedient people to draw others to himself these sailors went from praying to their little g gods to praying to the lord there's even some plays on words here in the hebrew when it says they offered sacrifices they offered sacrifices upon sacrifices and vows upon vows now watch the transformation. This goes back to the fear. At the beginning, what are they afraid of? They're afraid of the storm, right? And then in the middle, in verse 10, they feared because Jonah disobeyed the Lord. So now the Lord is a part of this fear. And then we get to the end here in verse 16. It says they had a great fear or a great awe of the Lord. You notice how their fear changes throughout the entire chapter. And now they're in awe of the Lord. They have this fear of the Lord. And so Jonah runs from the Lord 
to try to avoid sharing the message with a certain group of people. And what does God do? I want you to go here, share it with these people. He's like, nope, I'm going to go over here. And God's like, I'll use that to save those people. (laughs) It's interesting. It's beautiful. God saves a totally different group of people. He saves the pagan sailors who were headed to Tarshish. And one important thing about Tarshish, by the way, Isaiah 66, 19 tells us it was a land that hadn't heard God's fame or seen his glory. So God transforms the hearts of these pagan sailors And now they get to sail to a place that doesn't know about the Lord. God is in control of all things. That is incredible, the way that he used his disobedience. Now, one thing I will say is this. Um, We end verse 16, and we have a prophet that says he worships the Lord, that's actively trying to not worship the Lord, And we have a group of former pagan sailors that are actively worshiping the Lord that Jonah should be. God can use disobedient followers. That's good news for us, y'all, because sometimes we prefer to run. Sometimes we choose the long way, the roundabout way, the way that produces the most pain, and yet God still uses us. See, running from God doesn't stop him from accomplishing his will and his plan. It doesn't. And so as chapter 1 closes, we see one of the most familiar parts of this whole book where God provides a giant fish to swallow Jonah and save him. And we'll spend time on that next week. And so throughout chapter 1, we see a prodigal prophet, a group of transformed sailors, and a faithful, gracious God that always provides a way of salvation. And so I'm going to close with a couple questions that I just ask for you to consider. The first one is this, is your obedience to God conditional? See, Jonah's obedience was conditional. He was willing to obey until it came to giving up things that he loved. He loved being that spiritual, religious leader of a prosperous nation. Sometimes our obedience is tied to what we lose by obeying. So he was obedient when he prophesied to the king of Israel because it benefited him. The nation expanded his borders. He was viewed as a hero. But he ceased to obey when it became costly. So is our obedience to God conditional? Remember, partial obedience is still disobedience. Number two, do you need to repent and run to God instead of from God? Is there something God's asked you to do that you're actively running from? A call to ministry or missions, a call to share the gospel with someone, a relationship he's calling you to break off, a sin habit he's calling you to confess and bring to light, something that you need to repent of and run to God instead of from God. Jonah Jonah could have repented at any moment because God was right there waiting for it. As a matter of fact, in, in all four chapters, even though he prays several times, we don't actually see repentance from Jonah in four chapters. It's really interesting. Number three, do you need to stop trying to save yourself and rely on God for salvation? Are you relying on your own works and false gods to save you from death when God alone is the only one that can offer true salvation? We can be like Jonah in our unrepentance and running from God. We can also be like the sailors who worship other things thinking that they'll save them. But I encourage you this morning to do what the sailors did and to turn to the Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Uh, God, we thank you for Jonah and for um, just the things that we're able to learn, not just about how we are as humans. God, is our tendency to, to run the other direction, but that we see your grace and your goodness and who you are. 
God, we thank you that you still use flawed people. God, that your, as much as you desire to use your people and you do use your people, your will is not dependent on us. And so God, I thank you for that this morning. God, I just pray that you would speak however you need to and reach people however you need to. In your name, amen.